This is More Than Therapy Podcast. More Than Therapy. This is More Than Therapy. More Than Therapy Podcast. This is More Than Therapy. More Than Therapy Podcast. This is More Than Therapy Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Morning Therapy. Today we have Elijah Peoples of People's Counseling. He's going to tell us about different aspects of therapy, his work in prisons, and what he hopes to do in the future regarding healing a very hurt community. Elijah, thank you for coming here today on the Morning Therapy podcast. Oh yeah, man, anytime, man. I'm, I'm glad to be here. I mean, I know we've been talking about this for a while, so Facts. glad to be here, man. Part of it, man. Love what you're doing, too. I love what you're doing. I mean, it's very rare, or we think it's rare that we even come in contact with people that are males, that are black or brown, that work in the community and doing the good work. So I appreciate the work that you're doing, especially as more of our people are seeking help or wanting help or the stigma is eroding away so that they can feel comfortable getting help. And of course, they feel more comfortable getting help with somebody that can relate to their issues, such as a black or brown person if they come from that type of community. But the thing we're talking about today, most importantly, is you work in the prison system. Tell us about your experiences and what you've seen in the prisons and how you are addressing their issues. Yeah, man, certainly. Yeah, but, you know, before we get into that, Felipe, I just kind of want to piggyback off of what you said about, um, you know, black and brown therapists, you know, male therapists, man. It's, it's like, you know, one of those things where it's, it's like a rarity, you know what I mean? Like, you don't really see a lot of black males doing this. And so, like, you know, we really are like a commodity in this field, man, and, and we really make a, a difference with the, the relatability aspect of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I never personally thought I would have kind of, you know, navigated to this field. And I, you know, I often tell people, I kind of feel like this this profession chose me. I never really choose it because, you know, I started out, uh, you know, I'm a clinical social worker by training. You know that, you know, we worked together in a different at an agency in the past for some right. years. So, you know, I kind of, when I started out, when I got into this field and, and when I first went to graduate school for this, you know, my plan was to just straight go macro, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Mm-hmm. But um, after delving into the research a little bit and, and seeing that it was a it was a gap and a lack of um, therapists of color, male right. therapists specifically, I kind of chose this route. So, you know, I just kind of want to shed some light on that, man, because, you know, we, and it's still not enough, bro. Right? Right. You know what I mean? Right. It, it's, it's, um, and I think that's important to mention because, you know, we're at a time now, man, where everything that's going on in the world, you know, with, with, with the global pandemic, with the Me Too movement, the police brutality, I mean, that's been going on, but, you know, we've you know, we hikes that we haven't seen since civil rights era, right. um, segregation. Like, we at a time now where, man, everybody just want to get help, bro. Everybody want to talk to somebody. So the stigma with, with mental health is really going down a lot, yes. you know, because so many people need help right now. People right. Are, are finally saying, you know what, enough is enough. And with us being black males in the black community, a lot of black males have a lot of trauma, man, from childhood. Right. You know what I mean? And so um, I think that's something that's, that's really important because people trying to break generational curses now, bro. You, you know that. But, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been working in the prison for almost a year now. It's been about nine months. Okay. And um, I work at a minimal security facility um, out in Smithfield, North Carolina, Johnston Correctional Facility. Um, and so, you know, the work that I've been doing there, man, is is really been rewarded. Yeah. And um, you know, that's that's rare when when people can say that they 
you know, they, they feel like their work is rewarded. But, you know, we, we, we're in a healthy profession, man, and, you know, it, it's always rewarded to be able to make a difference in somebody's lives. The, the problem that a lot of us run into, we find out a lot of times we get burned out quick and we're underpaid. Right. But, you know, you're starting to see that change. And, mm -hmm. you know, you just have to be an advocate, man, for, you know, what you need salary-wise as far as they go. And right. you, when you, especially when you know you're doing some good work for Felipe, you know right. what I mean? Right. But um, it's a different practice setting. You know, I work yeah. inpatient and outpatient practice settings. And this is by far, man, one of the most interesting um, practice settings that I've worked into, man. Like, every day it's literally something different, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And... You know, it's bittersweet, Felipe, and I was telling I was telling my mother this, man, a couple weeks ago. I was talking to my parents. You know, they always ask me how things are going and right. work and stuff. But it's bittersweet to be a black male working in a correctional facility on the mental health tilt because, you know, I'm seeing a lot of people of color, bro, that look like me, young guys, you know, and I'm talking about I'm working. I got inmates on my caseload that range from 21 to 61. Mm -hmm. But when you look at that, um, so you're talking about generational um um, um, guys, you know, we're talking about a whole different right. generation where guys having mental health issues, substance abuse issues. But it's bittersweet, man, in the fact that, you know, I see all these guys, young guys that look like us, and I'm like, wow, like, you, you could have, you know, you never know what somebody like could have been. Right. But, you know, they they are what they are, and, you know, it is what it is. But um, I see a lot of guys, man, that, you know, they kind of had a messed up shot from the start. You know what I mean? Whether it was neglect, it was mm -hmm. abuse, it was exposure, you know, exposure to all yeah. types of trauma, man. Mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, and that right there, a lot of guys got a lot of trauma in their past, right. man. You know, all types of trauma, and so you never know, you know, where somebody like could have could have went if, right. if they hadn't experienced those things. You know, that don't excuse what they did because you know some of these guys are in, man, for some really heinous stuff. I, I work with guys convicted of everything from murder to child molestation, drug use drug selling, kidnapping, robbery, you name it, you know, all types of crimes. But at the end of the day, man, I don't I don't judge them for their crimes because I'm here to treat them mm -hmm. as a as a clinician. You know, because you know, one of the things that I do is mental health treatment plans. So when I talk to guys about what, what their goals are right. and um what they want to do as far as their mental health is concerned, you know, their treatment goals, you know, I have to um take into account their background. You know, their crimes because you know I'm, tra I'm trained like I said before as a social worker and we look at the holistic approach right. okay okay so how did this person get here what have they been through in their life so all that has to come into play when I'm coming up with a treatment plan and I'm collaborating with a person because I'm always using a, a person-centered approach and so that has to be um, really considered when, when you talk about you know the difference is going to be made mm -hmm. and so you know as a, as a therapist you've been doing this for a while but um, but I have to really approach it from a non-judgmental um, standpoint. You right. know what I'm saying? Because everybody can't do this, bro. If you looking, if a guy sitting across the hall from you, sitting across you know, the desk from you, I mean, and you know he's in there for molesting his granddaughter. You know what I'm saying? A lot. I mean, obviously, you know, we gonna have some, you know, because it's just natural human nature to have um, to be judgmental. Okay? Right. We already know the human behavior teaches us that. We all right. have a, a, a little bit of judgment. Right. Um, Judgment. Even though it's supposed to come from a non-judgmental, empathetic, and genuine response, right. I think people look at non-judgmental as like we have a, a blank slate. Like we just, but you have to have some judgment. Right. The key is to not treat them based on that judgment. Right. Yeah, and you and see, and you know, man, and so you know that that's hard to do. But mm -hmm. you know, you have to wear those different hats because right. at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a professional, and so 
I try to look at everything from a humanistic perspective. We all, this human experience, we're all going through together. Right. You know, whether you're a convicted killer or whatever your title may be. But so I have to give people some grace on the simple fact that, bruh, no matter if you're black, white, you know, whatever your pr- profession is, what your nationality, religious preference, you know, sexual orientation, right. we're all in the human experience together. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, big, so basically, with, with that being said, you know, we, you never know who could be facing a situation. Mm-hmm. It could be your daughter, your son sitting here across from me, you know. Right. So, you know, with that being said, I kind of look at that first. You know, we know we all humans, we all in this human experience together. So, um, I had to consider that, man, before I um, do anything. With right. This person. Definitely. Definitely. And, um, you know, that's hard to do. But, um, again, I, I think it's. I wanted to have this podcast because I think it just needed some some light to be shed on it because um, when you look at the mental health aspect of it, you know, people dealing with mental health disorders, and then you look at, like, the criminal justice system, it's not a lot of research out there Mm -hmm. talking about mental health and recidivism, you know what I mean? Um, I read one study when I was in grad school back in 2016 that said that um, one in four inmates have a mental health disorder, depending on you know, what research you look at, you'll either see one in four or one in five. So either way, it's that 20 to 25% of people that's in the criminal justice, um, or, 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 um, excuse me, that's in the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. they have some type of mental health disorder. Right. And this is just what's documented. Right. It's not, you can't even, you know, because you always want to have outliers, people that don't report or don't talk about the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So one in four people that I see every day, one of them got something going on in terms of, you know, their mental health. And so that's a big deal because um, there's not a lot of research out there um, talking about that. And, you know, the crazy thing about it is um, when a person has a mental illness, they're more likely to reoffend. And it's, it's, and it's various reasons for that. But um, some of the main reasons are just because um, basic human needs, man, when, when most of these guys are getting out, bro, it's a lack of resources. You know what I mean? Um, for people that have mental health disorders and convictions because, like, um, and I got some facts here, you know, that people can always go back and check. But, right. um, and I see this a lot because I do this. One of the things I notice that's very common, when a lot of guys are, are get ready to get out of prison, um, man, it's just very little resources. So when you get ready to get out of prison, you have to meet with, like, an aftercare social worker that's helping you. You know, they have a case manager that help them with their home plan, like where they're going to be staying mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But... If you're on mental health, um, if you're on the mental health caseload in, in, in North Carolina anyway, I know other states probably similar, but here if you're on, if you consider a mental health um, inmate, you know, prior to your release, about two or three weeks, you meet with the aftercare social worker, and at that time, he'll be talking to you, he or she'll talk to you about um, resources once you get out, you know, like linking you to social services in the county you're going to, to get, um, 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 in, uh, any type of benefits in terms of like finding housing or voucher, mm-hmm. um, healthcare, dental, that type of stuff, to keep getting um, linking you with a mental health agency. Right. But man, sometimes it's just um, slim pickings. Like for example, if you're a convicted sex offender in North Carolina, man, this done got to the point now to where you can't even go to homeless shelters. A lot of shelters don't even allow sex offenders there anymore. See what I'm saying? So if you're a convicted sex offender, right? And you have a diagnosis of say like bipolar disorder or something like that. And you're trying to find somewhere to go because, um, you know, in terms of like um, living, if, mm-hmm. if, if you because a lot of times a lot of these guys just don't have no family support. If if the family support is there, they don't cut them off because they don't burn bridges through the year. They don't. The family just not had enough. Or sometimes in some cases they just don't have nobody. Right. The family may be indigent. You know what I mean? 
And if they're not, they like I said, they may have cut them off. But um, if you have nowhere to go, right, when you get ready to get released from prison, and um, you have a home plan, um, and or you don't have a home plan, and you get dropped off at a homeless shelter, which is what's happening a lot of times. Mm -hmm. You got a few guys that may be able to go there, but then if they're, if they're convicted sex offender, they can't go there. Now, if they convicted of like you know a violent crime or a drug um, offense, they may be able to go to some counties. A lot of them there, but if they're a homeless, if they're, if they're a sex offender, they can't go there. So just imagine if you're a convicted sex offender, right? You have no family, you have nowhere to go when you when you get out. Right. So a lot of times they're just they're, you know the way it works like. Uh, um, Parole officer will drop you off somewhere. It may be at um, where you, if you don't have a home plan, you have nowhere to go. You may just get them to drop you off on the street or in front of a men's shelter or wherever have you a gas station, and you kind of just out there on your own trying to fend for yourself. Now, in most cases, somebody have a home plan identified where they can go, mm -hmm. but depending on their crime and the nature of it, they may not have many options. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, most of these guys have been in and out of the system so long that. The, the, the systems are familiar with them. It may be a recovery home, somewhere like Freedom House, or um, what's the other one in Durham, um, Trosa, they got places like that mm -hmm. that may not want the individual because they may have had them 10, 15 years ago, like, oh, this person's problematic. Last time they were here, you know, this and the third. Yeah. So a lot of times people are just kind of left out there. So lack of resources is one of the things that contribute to um, a person reoffending. And then if a person just has a mental health diagnosis, they're just more likely to reoffend as a person that doesn't. So um, that's like one of the things that I see a lot. Um, um, another thing that kind of sticks out um, that I noticed, um, the, um, the criminal justice system has increased tenfold between like 1983 and 2006. So one study said that in between 1983 and 2006, um, it's been a tenfold increase, meaning in the early 80s, it, it would be like 6.4% of people with a mental health disorder was involved in the criminal justice system. Right. Now that number is like 64%, okay? So yeah, it's, it's, it's um, so because people with mental health disorders, man, they're just more likely to be incarcerated in jail or prison as opposed to getting the psychiatric help that they need. But is it also, maybe the numbers are skewed because that, that would have always been the case, but they weren't being assessed properly, they weren't getting appropriate services to identify those issues? It could be, um, you know, that, that could be um, one of the one of the reasons why you know um, because from six or eight percent to sixty four that's a big jump in say right. twenty years or so right thirty years yeah thirty years. yeah yeah but the other part of that too is um, deinstitutionalization you know and so like beginning in like the nineteen sixties like you know um, I read one study said beginning in nineteen and, and this is coming straight from the beginning in the nineteen sixties mm -hmm. deinstitutionalization led more people with mental illness to the criminal justice system. Right. So when we got a lack of like psychiatric hospitals where these people go and get help, um, they wind up in jail. And you know that's kind of been going on for a while. You know, I I've been I heard about that when I was in grad school reading different studies. So you know, um, another study said in one study in 2014 found that approximately 356,000 inmates, right, with mental illness in the U.S. in prisons. Um, I mean, excuse me, one study found that in 2014, right, it was approximately 356,000 inmates, right, in U.S. prisons and as opposed to 35,000 in psych hospitals. Mm -hmm. So you see the difference? It's, right. it's, it's, it's 10 times more people in prison as opposed to um, psych hospitals. Right. And, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of um, politics that go, go into that stuff, man, because, you know, like, 
deinstitutionalization is like one of the things that the mental health field has really been trying to um, push since, like I said, the 60s. People really want you getting treatment in like residential facilities right. or outpatient right. as opposed to being um, in an inpatient place. But the fact that the matter is, some of these guys with severe mental illness, what they refer to as SMI, they really need to be in a hospital. Right. You know what I mean? As opposed to um, going to jail or prison. Right, definitely, definitely. There's recently um, a peer mm -hmm. at Freedom House who was killed. I think she was a nurse practitioner. She was killed by a person who had a, a history of criminal right. activities, mm -hmm. mainly against women, of yeah. a violent nature. And um, he was a client, I'm assuming, and not knowing all the details, don't want to go too much into it. But it seemed like a pattern of you know, right. getting out doing the same type of crime or a similar crime, going back in for a couple, getting out and doing it again, in and out. And I think this is the first time that he ever got to the point where it was murder. I don't know what kind of help he might have gotten in the past or if he got any help in the past. I'm just glad that someone like you now in these prison systems and these correctional systems that is able to address that and hopefully, like you were talking about that home care plan, assisting them with resources when they get out. Yeah, and I, yeah, man, and, and yeah, man, and that's needed. And I'm, I'm familiar with that story because I actually I saw that on WRL. Mm -hmm. It's funny because that you mentioned that because yeah, that happened right here in Durham. You know, it right. happened locally, and yeah, like you said, the guy had been in. He said he, he, I think he had spent like a third of his life behind bars. The guy might have been like, excuse me, like early fifties, late forties, but he had spent like a third of his life behind bars. And um. Yeah, man, um, you know, and like you said, he had a history of violence against women, um, particularly, and yeah, um, it went, actually, you know, unfortunately, it went so far to murder this time. But, um, yeah, it's funny, because my supervisor that I, that I um, that, um, at the prison that I work at now, she's actually been employed with um, the North Carolina Department of Safety for about 20 years. She's a psychologist, and, you know, she stated to me that she actually treated that guy at a facility in the past, and, you know, it's, it's just sad, man, to, to see that, it has um, went went to that point, but that guy, like so many other inmates, man, like I said, you know, lack of resources, man, and, and um, um, poor treatment outcomes. You know, mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately, when some of these guys getting out, they don't follow through with the continuity of care that they should. Like they may be, it's one thing if you're at a prison and you're seeing a psychiatrist once a month, every three months for med management, you know. Then you have a um, counselor like myself or you that you're seeing um, monthly um, to check in, you know, so you kind of got that, that um, co-treatment going on. But unfortunately, man, when some of these guys get out, they don't, um, even though they're being linked to resources, they don't always continue that, you know, they may get back out. And then you couple that with substance abuse. A lot of them got addiction issues. Mm -hmm. So when they get back on the street, you know, if they are not prioritizing their mental health and they fall back into that pattern of using, not taking any meds, they decompensate really quick. And unfortunately, man, that's like, that's like a recipe for disaster. So you got, you got a lot of that going on. But um, yeah, man, I think, you know, we all gotta be held accountable right. as a community because, you know, if we know we got a family member with severe mental illness, you know, we should intervene any way we can. And I know a lot of times that's like he just said and done, but you know, we just have to do our part, you know, make sure that, that family member family members is getting to the agency to get their therapy, mm -hmm. is getting to the agency to get their medicine. You know, make sure that, you know, um, you know, they can get to such services to get any type of resources for housing and, and, and food and all the stuff that they need. 
because I mean, let's just be honest, man. We know populations when it comes to people of color. Um, there hasn't been a lot of um, resources through the years, man. You talk about decades and decades where you know it's just not there. You know what I'm saying? Um, governmental programs are not um, responding the way they should. Now, I'm gonna bring up something interesting here that I see a lot going on now, like with the opioid epidemic. Now, anybody that's know anything about the opioid epidemic, they know that. The, the, the predominant amount of people that has affected has been like white suburbia, you know. So you talking about young teens, um, young adults, white people. It's been like the majority of people that's really been affected by it. And like um, over the past, I would say eight to ten years at least, the opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. But now you got a lot of governmental backed programs for this for this particular population, where like if people get caught with small amounts of drugs, they have the option to bring it into a facility in their local county, maybe a sheriff department, they're linked already with a mental health facility. They're treating these folks, man. Mm -hmm. Okay, bring us your syringes, bring us your drugs, not gonna prosecute. How to start that conversation with your friend about their mental health. First, make sure you aren't too far away. Closer, closer. Whoa, 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 too close. Now have something open-ended like, you all good? Are you all good? Or, Is everything okay? Is everything okay? Well done, awkward teenage actor. Thanks for you know. Thanks for asking. Find out how you can help a friend with their mental health at seizetheawkward.org. So like I was saying before um, we went to a commercial break, I was talking about how like, you know, um, since the opioid pandemic has been in, has been like, has, has been at the forefront of, um, has been one of the issues, I should say, at the forefront of, um, American politics and um, social issues over the like, past eight to ten years where the opioid epidemic just really exploded. Right. I, I was in grad school for like 2015 to 2017, so I was doing a lot of research on that back then. Right. But um, like I was saying, man, they got a lot of programs now where um, um, you know folks can bring in their drugs, bring in their syringes, bring in all their paraphernalia, turn it in, they won't get prosecuted, they'll treat them, you know, um, they'll treat them for their addiction. Mm -hmm. Now, when the inner city blacks was died from opioid use in the 70s, that was unheard of. And then when you creep into the 80s with the crack epidemic, mm -hmm. it was more so like a war on drugs. People right. were getting being prosecuted for small amounts of drugs, man, as opposed to getting a help for their addiction and their substance use. Right. So systemic racism, like I said, has always been um, associated with this stuff, man. And, you know, unfortunately, we just don't have a lot of policy and laws to kind of um, fight that. Now, I know when um, Obama was in office, one of the things he did was try to um, pardon a lot of folks that had been incarcerated um, on the federal law for small amounts of drugs and things like that. But this stuff has been going on, man. And, um, you know, I just always think that it's kind of crazy how, you know, when um, BIPOC populations of, of, of black or people of color are considered, you don't have these governmental-backed policies and programs to help people. Matter of fact, one study in 2001 from um, NAMI, which is the National Association for Mental Illness, in 20, um, so, they, so in 2015, they had released a report that said they found in 2001 less than 3% of violent crimes were committed with people with mental illness. So most of these people with mental illness also got a drug addiction. Mm -hmm. Why are we sending people to prison for being addicted to crack, being addicted to heroin, or using meth, instead of trying to get them right. treated? You know what I'm saying? Because um, one of the reasons is most of these people are people of color. And we all know that the prison system is a money-making industry. So I see a lot of it. I see a lot of guys in there for um, small amounts of drugs, mm -hmm. drug use, 
where they really, and they have a history of this, man, um, small, getting arrested for small amounts of drugs. I mean, ain't no kingpin in there for that, you know what I mean? Um, these guys got um, drug problems and stuff like that, and um, and that's, um, you know, just one of the risk factors, man. Untreated mental illness, um, drug addiction, just one of the risk factors for recidivism. Right. So, you know, obviously, we need more policies and government-backed programs to kind of help folks that are people of color, you know what I mean? So what do you think, what do you think about that? Because, you know, th those are facts, man. Oh, I believe it, and I know it, and it's sad. Um, I do work at a methadone clinic. I do work at several pain management clinics, and with that, that's what we see. We see a high population of African Americans that are finally, you know, working on their you know, recovery through treatment that might have been diverted, which wasn't a policy, like you said, 15, shit, even 10 years ago. Um, people are still incarcerated or have a history of incarcerations or just not able to get, you know, adequate jobs or adequate resources because of their past, which might have been led there by a small amount because of their addiction past related to them trying to address their mental health issues. There's a high correlation of schizophrenia and, and chronic mental, you know, drug use. Right. Yep. Yep. And I think, you know, and it's important, man, that, you know, people have more platforms like this to talk about this stuff, man, because, you know, we got to look out for our own, man. You know, um, not, you're not going to hear um, a lot of um, um, Caucasian therapists that are licensed in this field, they're going to be talking about people of color and just because it's not their fight, you know what I mean? And so, um, I think, I remember, um, you, are you familiar with Shep, Michelle Alexander? The, um, she's, a, she's a renowned civil rights attorney and author. She wrote this book called The New Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. um, it was published, I want to say, like in the mid-2000s, maybe around like between like that 05 and 07 era. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, it's talking about the New Jim Crow, and basically the New Jim Crow is the, um, the criminal justice system. You know how she talked about in the book how all these people of color, brown and black men, are being housed um, um, unfairly for um, convictions like that, man. Um, small drug convictions when they act when they actually had a, a drug problem, and how the um, the, the um, criminal justice system are really making money off this stuff, man. When they should be helping these people. Right. And so I had to read that book when I was in graduate school for like a social policy class. But she shut a lot of stuff on that, man. That it's like real cases of real people. That you know was incarcerated under the um, Reagan administration, um, under those crimes, um, the war on drugs and stuff like that. A lot of those people had drug problems, man. Middle right, illness, right. incarcerated for lengthy sentences, bro, for like marijuana, right. small amounts of crack cocaine. So that's just another book. A lot of people should read, shed some light on yeah. um, some of the stuff that I'm kind of touching on today. But it's, it's been going on, man, and um, you know, but that's you no, know, that's kind of like um, you know, one of the things that's that's really bothering me because um. Mental illness is, is a big part of this recidivism stuff, man. Mm -hmm. and especially when it comes to folks of color. Um, so when you so when you look at that, you know, um, like I said, the um, NAMIs, they say less than three percent of violent crimes right. are, are um, with a mental health illness. Right. right. So why are we not trying to get these people help that they need instead of incarcerating them? But again, you know, it's it's it's, probably, it's a lot of politics, man. A lot of red tape. You know, um, it's it's a money making business, and that's just the way it is. Um, and, and it starts before we get into adulthood. Um, if you know anything about the school to prison pipeline, that talks about, um, there's research out there about that, man, how a lot of these kids of people of color, they have behavior issues, um, um, emotionally disturbed, um, which all that falls under the, the, mental, the mental health realm. But right. kids with mental health are more likely to be, with mental health or mental health disability, more likely to be suspended from school right. for the same behavior than white counterparts do. 
see what I'm saying? And not only that, they know how many prisons to build or budget for in the future based on those behavioral records. Right. That's what they base it on. So actually, it doesn't behoove the school to develop programs in those earlier years to stem that behavior if they're going to look at their profit or what the prisons can make later on. Right. Yeah, man, and that's sad. You know, it's a, it's a sad fact of reality, man. But, you know, you know, like I said, you know, um, it's something that'll be going on. It's been going on, man. It'll be going on long after we gone. But I, I just Hopefully like, not, because you plan on getting your doctorate. Let's talk about that. Right. Yeah, and so um, I, I want to get my doctorate in, in public health, man. Um, you know, like I said, I'm a, I'm a clinical social worker now by training. And, um, you know, like I told you, um, when we first had started talking, man, I mean, I, I initially wanted to go into like macro level work, right. um, you know, helping people on a large scale, some policy type stuff. But um, I got into the clinical stuff because, you know, right now I just that's where we, we really we've been paid more doing that, and mm -hmm. you know, um, the student loans is just outrageous <laughs> for people that went to college, you know, um, in that in that millennial era. But um, but I eventually want to get into some macro level work, man. You right. know, four or five years from now, and I. It's a doctor of public health program mm -hmm. that I really have been looking into at Morgan State in Baltimore, Maryland. You know, Morgan State is um, HBCU, Historic Black College um, University. It's been around for a while. They have some really great programs, man. But, um, you know, I really want to get into some macro-level stuff, like, you know, teaching um, at the graduate level, mm -hmm. either in public health or social work. And, um, you know, I want to stay licensed. But, it's you know, I, I really want to do that because I feel like with practice experience, you know, who knows? I probably could help influence some policies. Mm -hmm. You know, try to get more policies influenced where they're going to help people have programs like that. You know, where we can get st um, states and um, um, the politicians that be and the powers that be to put funds aside for this type of stuff right. instead of prosecuting people. Okay, well, let's see how many people we can put through a program dedicated to addiction and mental health right. when they have um, uh, moderate. Um, um, arrest records and misdemeanor convictions for drugs, alcohol, and petty theft and things like that because all of it is driven by an addiction. Mm -hmm. So um, we just don't have a enough policies and laws, man, enough funds to support this stuff. So right. that's why I want to, you know, um, get eventually into some policy level stuff. And um, a doctor of public health can really help yeah. me in my um, career path because it's like a it's a practice degree, but it also is based on a lot of policy stuff dealing with public health, um, dealing with um, these um, underserved or underserved populations and stuff like that. Right. So that's kind of like where I want to go with my career. But in the meantime, I'm just trying to fight the good fight, man, one client yeah. at a time, and, and um, be a model for some of these guys, man. Um, help who I help because you know you know we can't help everybody if we pay you know it, it, some won't just be lost in the cause man that's just the way it is but you know um, each one got to teach one man and for the ones that we can't help we, we got to be able to help and so right. that's one of the things that I was talking about earlier when I was saying working in prison is really rewarding because I mean a lot of these guys tell me bro just how much they appreciate me. you know what I mean like man I, I really appreciate being able to come in and talk to you man you know. Um, you know, because they don't see a lot of people of color doing this. You know, right. usually they're talking to a white counselor, and um, and it, it ain't nothing wrong with that if, if that person is for the cause and they really want to, to right. um, help you know these populations. But ain't nothing like being able to identify with somebody. Right. You know what I mean? Because um, a lot of these guys are in my age, and even they're not my age. They could have been my my parents. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Guys, my dad. I got guys in my parents' age, sixties and seventies. 
and been, um, you know, I got some guys that I see in prison that are lifers. They like early 60s, um, mid 60s. They've been in prison 30, 40 years, down on a life sentence or something. And some of them are eligible for parole because um, in North Carolina, if you were sentenced to a life prior to like 1995, you actually are eligible for parole. They have this program called the MAP, which stands for um, um, mutual. I think it stands for mutual agreement, um, mutual agreement prisoner. Something I can't get all the letters right now. Um, oh, mutual agreement of prisoner parole or something to that effect. But they could get. Um, it's like an agreement basically between the state and the offender that okay, you 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 still an offender, but you've been kind of like a model prisoner. You haven't given us a lot of trouble. You've been down a long time. We're gonna give you a chance to get back out there in society. Right. But. Any little thing they do, they can be sent back to prison to serve the rest of that sentence. It could be a misdemeanor, you know, anything. So some of these guys are eligible for that to get back out. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but unfortunately, um, if they receive a life sentence after that, they pretty much, life is life, you know. Um, it's like 80 years according to the old statute. Um, but a lot of, yeah, like, yeah, you know, a life sentence is like 80 years in North Carolina, mm -hmm. right? Um, but... A lot of these guys, I mean, under the Fair, the Fair Citizen Act, you know, they were sentenced like around that 1995 or before era. They they were um, eligible to get out because of the Fair Citizen Act. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's like a federal policy that basically said well, a person in prison, their time get cut in half and they can get jail credits. So if you got sentenced to like a life sentence in like the 60s and 70s, um, if you've done like 35, 40 years on it, you're eligible to get out under the Fair Citizen Act. But, um, I don't know if you remember the North Carolina Governor Beverly Perdue. When she was in office, she pretty much got like a judge to kind of like put in a junction, an, an injunction to pretty much say these guys don't need to get out because their um, danger to the to general public is greater than them being having served their time. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't be get out. You had a bunch of North Carolina lawyers, man, that was fighting um, to help these guys. Like some of these guys that was working, I guess, for like um um these different nonprofits that kind of help like wrongfully right. convicted or get people out, you know, based on fair sentences and stuff like that. Right. They had clients that they was representing them. They like, no, these guys need to get out. They've served their time. But some kind of way, man, she got the, uh, a judge to like a, to block that, basically saying that their chair credits didn't matter. It didn't matter about the time they had served. They, they, they are danger to the public still. And so some of those guys never got out. So you got stuff like that um, going on. And again, man, that's just a part of stigma racism. But you already know most of them was people of color. You know what I mean? So, um, but, you know, you know, um, I'm an advocate for, um, you know, a person that, that paid debt to society, they've, you know, been a model inmate. When people say, well, what is a model inmate? Well, I'll tell you, um, they not in there causing a bunch of ruckus, giving the prison staff a hard time. They not, um, assaulting other inmates, they're not um, extorting other inmates, gang banging, um, sexual assaulting other inmates, that type of stuff. If they kind of been like a role model for other guys to see, mm -hmm. then they kind of earned their way out, you know. And so, um, and that's a big deal, man. Um, you know, it, it's got to be up to the, the person that's in that situation too, you know, is your, is your mindset changed? You know, do you really want to address your mental health and substance abuse issues, you know? Excuse me. Do you really want to address it and get well and get better? And depending on what it may be asked, you know, they may say yeah, some may not care. And so, it, it really is an uphill battle, man. You know, because um, you got to look at the whole picture. You know, um, a lot of these guys are treated 
some of them come in there and you know they they happy to be able to talk to somebody man they, they never would have wanted to address them in the health in the, in the world but a lot of times man being away from society give you time to think that's one thing it do give you time to think and right. assess and reassess your life and, and um, prioritize and, and see what was important right. to you and so some of these guys they really do want to get get well but some of them man they still being there doing the same thing on the street they being there getting high because make no mistake this drugs in the the correctional staff bring it, bring it is usually the ones that bring it in. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy, man, because it's like a whole different culture. Like, man, you know, you got guys in there that, um, you know, they might have been what they call shot callers. You know, they may be um, selling drugs in there. They may be a um, high-ranking gang member. They got other little gang members under them doing stuff. And so, like, they can get their girlfriend from the outside of their baby mother, whatever have you, wife, meet a guard, bring them X amount of drugs, and they'll pay the guard. Say, uh, a, a, a guy wants to get a thousand dollars of drugs in a prison. The way he'll do it is, he'll get his wife or girlfriend or whatever to meet the guard on his off day with a thousand dollars of drugs. Right? He might be paying the guard five hundred dollars for doing it. So the drug, the guard get his five hundred dollars for for bringing the drugs back into the prison. Now, once that thousand dollars of drugs get into the prison, that inmate will make the ball. Four or five thousand. It would be five times what he would have made on the street because the way it works is there's no money in there, but everything is done by like an inmate account. Mm-hmm. So if I got some weed or some cocaine or some boxing or whatever it is, heroin, and you won't say you want twenty dollars for it, then you'll get your girlfriend, your mama to cash out my girl for twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. See how I work on the mm-hmm. outside? I give the drugs and my money keep on flowing. Mm-hmm. So I do that to all my drugs. Gone. Right. And my girl to get all the money, and then she can put it on my inmate account. So while I'm in there, I can have whatever I need. And so that's the way it works. Mm-hmm. So um, you got a corrupt system. Um, and at the prison I work at, um, it's a lot of drugs in there, man. Like, you know, that's just the way it is. Every prison like that, you know. Is, what there, I mean? is there any drug testing in the prisons? Yeah, they 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 do drug testing. I'm not sure exactly um, how they administer those and how often, but I know they do it because. You can see, like, on the um, in the, in the inmates' um, health um, electronic record, mm-hmm. you know, when they've had a drug test and whether it was positive or not, they do do it. But again, I'm not sure, like, how they decide when they're going to do it and, and um, how often. But they they do do drug tests and they do um, searches where they have dogs coming in in different dorms. Because the prison I work at is like a minimum security, so they got like dormitory style. Mm-hmm. Like, you got you might have like 40, 50 inmates housed in a dorm. And so they like bunk beds and stuff. So they they do their searches where they bring in the dogs, they sniffing out stuff, they find drugs all the time. And that's every prison in America. They they do stuff like that. Right. So, but um, the drug culture don't stop. Just because somebody get incarcerated, if they still want to get high and indulge in those vices, man, they gonna do it. And so, you know, that's just a fact of the matter. But um, mm-hmm. you know, um, you really you really got to be a person that that wants to to change, man, right. your way of thinking. And so, you know, that's where I come in at, you know, yeah, as, a, as a therapist to kind of help guys. Um, you know, as a therapist, we, we compassionate facilitators. Mm-hmm. It's not my job to change you. It's your job to change you. Right. But it's my job to show you how to change to teach you um, methods to change your behavior, mm-hmm. to um, change your way of thinking. Right. Or um, either accept it and um, say, you know what, I got to accept this, mm-hmm. but I'm going to commit to change behavior. You know, so that's what you call acceptance and commitment therapy. That's like one of my models that I use. Um, and so recently, I, I was talking to you about it before the show started. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things I found, like in my state, North Carolina, you got um, mental health camps. You know, different prisons, they have mental health um, um, 
You got mental health staff there. Not all prisons in North Carolina do, but some do. So if you got a diagnosis from the community and you got a history of mental health treatment, when you get into prison, that'll continue. Like, you know, they'll you'll be asked a bunch of questions. It's like anything else you do. You come to a facility, they're going to ask you a bunch of questions about your treatment history, this and that. And so based on that, they'll um, determine, okay, he needs to be on mental health. And, but you can always refuse. You know what I'm saying? Can't nobody force you to get help. Right. But certain mental, certain prisons got um, mental health um, staff there. And so inmates are housed based on that. Um, so one of the things I know is like, for example, Central Prison here in North Carolina where they put people to death at. They have an inpatient facility. You know what I'm saying? For guys that have severe mental illness, like um, psychotic disorders and stuff like that, they got a history of suicidal, self-injury behavior. They may go there, um, and then once they get stable enough, they'll send them to another prison. Mm -hmm. But, like, at my prison, we didn't have, like, group there. So I saw a need for it. So I got a, a caseload of about 90 to 100 inmates that I see um, once a month. The, 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 the um, mental health policy in this state um, um, for the Department of Corrections is, um, or the Department of Public Safety, rather, you have to see these guys at least once a month. Now, if they're dealing with something and they need to see you before then, that's up to you as a clinician or therapist to say, okay, well, the prison, you know, policy is I got to see you at least once a month. But because of what you got going on, I need to see you like every two weeks. So you might have a couple guys that you see every two weeks. Mm -hmm. But generally, a month or one, uh, a once a month, you know, check in is, is good enough for the majority of people, about okay. 70 to 80%. Mm -hmm. But then I got those few inmates I have to check in with every other week because they got extreme emotional um, issues when it comes to emotional regulation, um, stress tolerance, stuff right. like that. So what I'm doing is I went to my supervisor and said, hey, I know this is a need for group therapy. I would like to implement a dialectical behavior therapy group. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? And she said, hey, I think it's great. You know, I think that would be good. You know, the guys would benefit from it. So I said, okay, well, let me get my outline together on how I want to structure it. And, um, what days, once I get all that together, um, and get back with you, I just had to figure out when, like, I had to find, like, a space in the prison where I could do it. Mm -hmm. So, um, I created, um, a structure where I, I got, like, 12 weeks I'm gonna do, like... How to continue the talk with your friend about their mental health after you ask about how they were feeling. Put down that phone. Do it. Nobody's texting you. Phone down. Good. Now it's time to listen. If they're not ready to talk yet, check back in later. I'm always here if you want to talk. Okay? That was great. Find out how you can help a friend with their mental health at seizetheawkward.org. Awkward. Say, hey, you know, you want to do a DBT group? I think that's great. And so what I did was I said, okay, well... I see some of these guys got a history of trauma, mm -hmm. depression, substance use, right. um, self-interest behavior, um, you know, so forth and so on. They could really benefit from something like a um, DBT skills training group. Right. And so I decided to create a group where we would go 12 weeks. We would spend three weeks on, like, the um, main um, components of, of DBT, mm -hmm. which is basically... Um, 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 emotional regulation. Emotional regulation, distress tolerance. Um, I can't think of the other two components right now. But, <laughs> but basically, these are all things that are, um, people can benefit from. Right. Um, Everybody. Yeah, emotional effectiveness, I think. I mean, I mean interpersonal effectiveness, that's mm -hmm. one of the other components. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people don't know how to communicate, you know, their emotions. 
they don't know how to regulate their emotions, though. They're just used to going straight to these maladaptive behaviors, whether right. it's injuring themselves, right. whether it's hooping and hollering, whether mm -hmm. it's using a substance. Mm -hmm. So I figured these guys could really benefit from some of this stuff. So, you know, I did a, a continued education on DBT, did a lot of research on it, and so I, I figured out a way where I can structure it. Um, and, and mindfulness, actually, that's the other component. So you got mindfulness, you got emotion, interpersonal effectiveness, emotional regulation, stress tolerance. So um, I'm going to dedicate three weeks to each one of these skills mm -hmm. into where we, you know, focus on them, do some role playing, show these guys how to really implement this stuff. Right. But the challenge part about that for me, Pay, is I can't just get any um, group of guys to do it. So if you look at group therapy, you look at the research on it, it usually says about an effective group for group therapy is anywhere from five to 15 people. Mm -hmm. So I said, my particular group, I wanted to be like seven to 10 people. Mm -hmm. And so, but the thing about that, this challenge is I just can't randomly pick 10 inmates. I have to really look at their treatment history, mm -hmm. their behaviors, and say, what group of guys can I get together for 12 weeks, teach these skills, and they would be um, accepting of them and willing to um, do this and commit right. to it. Right. Because I can't just put a bunch of inmates in one room some of them are gay right. some of them are right. killers, some of them don't like each other. Right. So that'll be a risky thing. Right. Yeah. So I got to do it based on their treatment, right. their similarities and differences. So that's the challenging part. So, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like for me, and, and, and every therapist would do this differently. But right. for me, um, because the thing about DBT is I really like it, man. It's a great, um, and I encourage anybody that's in the mental health field that's listening, that's interested in DBT, to really research it, read up on it, take you a CE or something. But the interesting thing about it is, man, um, it's a therapy approach that kind of mixes CBT and like act. Mm -hmm. You know, so you know you got that acceptance component, but then you know, you know, you also got that um, that component that's teaching people how their thoughts are affecting their right. um, behavior and their um, emotions and stuff. Right. So um, it's kind of like those two therapy um, approaches kind of combined in one. And the thing about it that's interesting is, you know, you can structure it how you want to, mm -hmm. but teaching these people these skills, man, gonna really help them in the long run. Yeah. And that's the thing about um, when you when you're doing therapy. One of the things that's challenging in this field, Felipe, and you know this, you've been mm -hmm. in the field for a while. The reason a lot of times therapy not effective because people will drop out of treatment um, um, for a time, or they one or they two won't follow treatment recommendations. Right. And so the important thing about it is. You have to really um, assess for readiness. You know what I'm saying? What's that person's? Um, um, are, they, are, are they ready to change? You know, where are they? Where are they at um, in terms of readiness? And I tell guys all the time, it's okay, bro, if you don't, if you're not ready to change your behaviors. If you're not ready to stop, if you're not ready to quit using drugs and drinking and getting high, right. that's perfectly fine. Everybody readiness is gonna be. Um, different. That's what we call the stages of change. You know it. So if you're not, if you're still in those first two stages of change, pre-contemplation and contemplation, that's okay. You'll get there on your own time. I can't force you to get there. Your parents right. can't do that. Your mama, your daddy, your cousin can't do that. Right. You got to do that when you decide, okay, I'm ready to get some help. And so I let guys know all the time, like, hey man, if you're not ready now, it's okay. But when you are ready, let's have a conversation and figure out how we can move you a little bit further along in those stages. And so that's the challenging part. Trying to find out, okay, is this guy serious? Is he, is he really ready to make some changes? Is he really ready to learn this? And that's one of the things I tell guys, like, look, man, if you're going to be in this group, once you start, I expect you to take it all the way through. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Take it serious because I'm going to be assigning homework. It's going to be certain expectations, mm -hmm. you know. And if you really want to get well and improve and learn how to 
better deal with your mental health issues, right. you have to commit to this. And that's the big part about it. That's right. And if you, you know, and I know you an addiction counselor too, mm-hmm. so, you know, you, you know how this works. Right. And um, that's, you know, one of the things I find challenging. But it is rewarding, man, to have guys respect you. You know, I got dreads on black. So when I walk through a prison, though, you know, man, you know, like that made me feel good to know I got respect of these guys. And some people may say, well, why do you want respect of a bunch of convicted criminals? Because one thing that act therapy teaches you is, and when you're talking about selfish context, you're just a, you're just a part of your experience. That don't make you who you are. Whatever you experience in that moment, that's who you are, but that's not just all, like, I'm a father, you're a father. Right. I'm a therapist, you're a therapist. But that's not all we are. We brothers, we cousins, you know, we taxpayer citizens. We, you know what I'm saying? So, um, you just a part of that experience. That's not all. That's not all you are. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to teach these guys. Like, yeah, you you a convicted criminal for whatever the crime is, but that's not all you are, bro. You know what I'm saying? It's more to you than that. So, um, that's one of the things I like about acting. You know, I, I I try to get guys to really focus on the here and now. Because that's all that matters, bro. Behavior in the here and now is all that matters. What you did in the past and the future is not relevant because the only behavior that matters is the here and now. That's the only thing you got control of. Mm-hmm. So if we could get guys to um, have some psychological flexibility, which which what act therapy teaches, then we can get people to see that, okay, well, I can change this behavior. I can modify my way of thinking to, to where it benefits me. Mm-hmm. But you got to have that psychological flexibility. And that's one thing that I learned um, when I was doing the CEO on ACT Therapy. I was like, man, this is a really cool model, man. I like the, the components of it. And it could be, it's trans-diagnostic, man. You can use it for so many different um, diagnoses and stuff. So when I saw that, I said, hey, I could start a, a group therapy um, group at this prison and really um, have a difference, you know, really make some type of difference. So, you know, that's kind of where I am with that now. And, um, you know, I'm excited to see where this goes, man, and um, how these inmates um, respond to it and stuff like indeed, that. Indeed, indeed. So, leave out listening and watching the audience with some final words. Yeah. Well, um, I just, you know, you know, like I said when I first started, man, you know, this 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 fight is our fight. And right. I, I do this for my people. And when I say my people, man, I'm a black therapist, so my target um audience is always going to be people of color. Mm-hmm. They refer to it in, in, in research as BIPOC, which is black, indigenous, and people of color. So that's all people of color, because if you're not a white American, you're a person of color. That's how they classify us. Mm-hmm. So what I do is, is to educate and teach you know people of color um, how they can live better lives, man. Like That's one of the things I tell people. I teach people how to um, be better and live better one day at a time, because it's really how you have to take it. You know? right. And um, I just, you know, the message, any message, I won't leave anybody. They don't take nothing out of this podcast. I just want people to know that you got to prioritize your mental health. Your mental health is a part of your health. So if you go to the doctor for all your other health issues, prioritize your mental health. If you don't have any mental health issues or diagnosis, if you got family members, help them prioritize it. You know what I'm saying? And no matter how stubborn they are, people going to use drugs, people going to not take their meds. Excuse me, but you always got to be that voice of reason telling them, like, hey, make sure you take your meds, you know. Be non-judgmental with it, though, you know. Like, yeah. You know, you know you'll know, you be better off if you take your meds, you know, things like that, you know. When you know what happened last time, you start taking your meds mm-hmm. and you started bad drinking, mm-hmm. you know. 
And you got to get people to realize what's important to them, which are their values. Right. What do you value? If you can talk to people and get them to see what's important to them, free pay, they can make changes based on what's important to them. Every action they take can be a value-based action. Mm -hmm. Because if you value your family, your kids, and your freedom, then you're going to value taking your medication, right. going to the doctor, right. seeing about your mental health. Because if not, all those other things don't matter because you ain't going to be around to see it no way. So it's all about understanding what people value, man. And, and um, you know, like I said earlier, each one got to teach one. What do we value? Where does that fit into our lives? Because if we got a family member that's suffering with severe mental illness or an addiction, that's going to cause problems for you whether you want it or not. You know what I mean? Because you're going to be the one sending the money while they're incarcerated, going to get them out of jail or going to the hospital getting them when they done decompensated and they had a detox facility, they having a psychotic episode or whatever have you. So, you know, we as family members and friends and loved ones, we got to do our part too, man. You know what I mean? So um, I just want to say if you're a person of color, you heard this podcast, you know somebody, or if you yourself got some type of mental health issue, just remember, you know, um, you, you you are your whole person, you know, but you not, you, you um, when, when I say the whole person, you know, your body health, um, your body, spirit, and mind, all of it is connected. Mm -hmm. If you let one get neglected, it's going to affect the other two. Right, my body, right? soul. My body, soul. And the other part of that, Felipe, is... Um, you know, you're different from your experiences. You know what I mean? That's not all you are. So if you've got an addiction problem, that's not your end-all, be-all. Right. That's just one aspect of it. Right. You know what I mean? So I appreciate you having me on, man. I appreciate you, man. And I appreciate yes, the good work that you do, and I look forward to seeing what the future holds for you regarding your impact on mental health. I appreciate Thank it. you for everything you do, sir. Yes, sir. That's another episode of More Than Therapy. You can listen or watch Morning Therapy anywhere where you listen to or watch your favorite podcast. Push play on your favorite podcast and subscribe to the Morning Therapy Podcast. Be well and be great.